All right. <clears throat> well, we are in Deuteronomy 7. So if you want to, if you're not there, you can go ahead and flip over to Deuteronomy 7. And I'm, I'm excited about picking it up this week. <clears throat> We're, um, we've been looking at Deuteronomy for a while now. And uh, what we've said, basically, just to kind of really quickly dive back in with a little bit of context. Deuteronomy is a compilation of three sermons of Moses uh, that he um, expounded on the plains of Moab to the second generation of Israel that has come out from Egypt. They're about to enter into the land of Canaan. And so Deuteronomy recounts uh, this covenant renewal between Yahweh, God, and the nation of Israel right before Yahweh brings them into the land, destroys the people of the land, and sets up Israel as his chosen nation in all of the earth. Um, and uh, they came out with their parents. Their parents were the first generation uh, that um, basically rejected the command of the Lord after the 12 spies were sent out. They all died in the wilderness, and now their children are the ones that about walk into the promised land. To give you a real quick outline of like how Deuteronomy looks, this is just... It's not like the, the outline, but it's an outline. But basically, the first exposition is the first four chapters. We've talked about that. It's, very, it's, it's really the history of Israel from Mount Sinai to the place where they're at now, about to go in. And it ends with a, just a, um, uh, an exhortation from Moses, from the Lord, to, to listen, uh, to uh, keep his commands diligently, to do them when they go into the land, and just the expectations, the blessings that come with obedience and the... And the warnings that come if they uh, disregard the Lord. The second exposition is where we're in the middle of that now. We're at the beginning of that now. It's huge. So from 5 to 26, the majority of the book is this second exposition. And we're in letter A here, the exposition of the Decalogue or of the Ten Commandments. So chapters 5 through 11 really talk about God's relationship with Israel, the law that he has given to Israel, that both uh, shows them how to love him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, how to love one another how to be the chosen people of God. And he's going to go on from there to talk about the, the actual particular statutes and judgments found in the law all the way through chapter 26. And then finally, the third exposition, we'll, which we'll get into in about four years, is what God will do. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it won't be that long. But uh, what God will do really in the new covenant. I'm just saying that for now until we get there, chapters 27 to 30. And then Deuteronomy ends with a historical appendix at the very end, just the end of Moses' life and his song, blessing, and then... Uh, his his death. So we are in, like I said, the second the second exposition here. And we left off last week at the end of chapter six in Deuteronomy, and we saw God's command for Israel to listen to and to practice His commandments first and foremost, and then to teach their children all that He has given to them, so that their children know Him, so that their children follow Him. And again, there's there's immediate consequences if they don't because they will get kicked out of the land if they turn to other gods or they disregard the commands of God. But there are eternal consequences as well of them being separated from God eternally. And so we talked about some of the implications for us uh, knowing his word and making sure our children know his truth. Um, and just a, one reminder that this is, uh, we, we talked about this at the very beginning, but this, this covenant renewal that Moses is doing with the second generation here on the plains of Moab, it wasn't a one-time event. This was supposed to happen every seven years of the Feast of Booths so that Israel is continually renewing that covenant relationship with Yahweh God. And each generation subsequently is learning the truths of God's word. Not, they should be doing this all the time. Remember, whether they go in or come out, whether they're lying down or rising up, wherever they're at, they should be teaching their children the commands of God. But there should be a national renewal every seven years. Now, we learned that from Deuteronomy 31. At the end of every seven years, you shall read this law in front of all of Israel in their hearing, so that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of this law. Their children uh, who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live on the land. And so that is, this, this should be happening over and over and over um, throughout the, the history of national Israel. So today we're beginning in chapter 7. And here Moses basically begins to address the dangers that Israel will face when they come into the land. And the, dangers, the danger that they're facing is not the power and the strength and the size of their physical enemies that are in the land. The danger comes from God. And if they do not live in submission to him, in faithfulness to God, if they go out and serve other gods or they intermarry with the people of the land and adopt their cultures and their practices, the Lord says, not only will it turn you away from me, 
but then his judgment will be set against them. And so right out the gate, there's the warning. We've already talked about this when we looked at um, the, the first generation. We've talked about this when we kind of looked at the overview of Deuteronomy. We know that this will be the future of national Israel in the land, which is so sad. But the warning here is the imminent danger of idolatry. And so we're calling this today uh, the peril of idolatry. We're going to be talking about what God, Yahweh God, is saying to Israel on the plains of Moab. But there are many, many, many direct implications that we all need to pay attention to as we read these words that God has given to Moses, that Moses has given to Israel. And we make sure that we are applying these same principles in our lives. And so um, I, I wanted to start out by, again, I like, I like pitching good books to you guys sometimes. There are two, well, actually there's, well, yeah, just two books that really stood out. As I was, as I was studying this, and as I was going through the text, I just kept reminding, I, I just kept remembering reading through these two books uh, in the past. One of them I've read many times. The first one is called The Gospel, uh, Gospel Treason, Betraying the Gospel with Hidden Idols. If you have not read this, this is a wonderful book. It's kind of like a, a primer for digging out idols in your life. It's a, it's a good starting place of, of identifying, because a lot of times we're self-deceived to begin with. We don't even see all the things that we're entrenched in in our own lives. Or we dismiss them as preferences or things like that. And what this book is good at is helping you to discern the patterns, the habits, the things in your lives that are actually uh, separating you or, or at least not separating you in the sense of you're not born again, but there's idols that you're entertaining that, that, that definitely could be things that eventually, you know, cause you to fall away from, from uh, the, the Lord. Um, but uh, it's really uh, a book that helps you to discern the things in your life that have, uh, you have a greater affection for than you do for Jesus Christ. One of the quotes he says here is he says that sin is what you do when you're chasing after something other than God, namely one of your idols. Idolatry is at center stage of my heart and your heart because idolatry is nothing more than a metaphor for human craving, yearning, and greedy demands. It's good to, to think about. He says, when you are craving something other than God, even something good, God takes it very seriously. In that moment, he is coming after you. He's coming after you for his glory and for your own good because life for us is better without idols. And life for us is better when we are delighting in the gospel and loving Christ as our highest treasure. Life for us is better when we are focused on God and free from idols. And so that's, like I said, just a little glimpse into where this book goes. Uh, it's a very good book. Um, and, and like I said, it's very good at helping you to discern your own motivation, desires, cravings, the things that, that, that you love more than Christ. But my favorite, and the one that I've read over and over and over, and I used to take college guys through this book all the time, is The Mortification of Sin by John Owen. Just another really good book. If you have not read this, I would encourage you to read it. Find a good translation, because if you read the old English, it's hard to grasp unless you're one of those KJV guys and your brain is trained to, you know, the these and thous and all that. This is my favorite version of it. Uh, it looks like this. I can't remember who publishes it. But one of the main quotes, you probably heard John Owen, it, it comes from this book. He says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Gospel Treason is very good. Gospel Treason is a great book. This one, I mean, it, it not only is just full of scripture, but it hits hard at that. That this is dire. If you are not mortifying your flesh daily and killing sin in your life, then you are already heading far, far away from the Lord. This is an ongoing pursuit. It's something we are always striving after. It's something that the Lord gives us strength for in this life, and it's something that we'll, we will continue to fight until the day we die. But he does give us the strength. He gives us the strength to not only sniff out idolatry, but to be going after the things that would strive to separate us from Jesus Christ. And this is something that the children of God are always doing. And that's what these verses today are getting at. God is warning Israel what will happen if you do not completely and faithfully submit to everything that I've said to the extent that he has said it. And we're going to talk about that today. Uh, and we're going to, like I said, we're calling this the peril of idolatry. We're only going to get through the first 11 verses. But here's how I'm laying it out. Verses 1 through 5, really, the Lord talks to them about the peril, the danger of idolatry. Uh, first, we see the promises of Yahweh to Israel. And then we see... Uh, how, how deceitful and how dangerous idolatry is 
in the next few verses. And then after that, he talks about who they are. They are the people of Yahweh. They are the chosen people that God has specially placed his love on and brought out according to his own plans and his own purposes. And even that should cause them to flee from idolatry. So we're going to start, like I said, in Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5. We're calling this first part the peril of idolatry. So let me read it and then we'll dive into to what he says here. Again, I do have the LSB up here because I like it because it is helping you to see over and over and over when Yahweh God calls himself Yahweh and you see this is the covenant name he's given to the people of Israel. So he says in verse 1, When Yahweh your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and he clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and stronger than you. And when Yahweh, your God, gives them over before you and you strike them down, then you shall devote them to destruction and you shall cut no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me and they will serve other gods. Then the anger Uh, the anger of Yahweh will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you. There's the of. (laughs) But thus you shall uh, do to them. You shall tear down their altars and shatter their sacred pillars and cut their ashram into pieces and burn their graven images with fire. When I started reading the commentaries about this section, it's funny because I started with the the Hebrew and the English and I was looking through it and I was looking at the context. And then at the end, I started reading the commentaries. These are really hard verses. For a lot of people to stomach because there it's, you know, people look at this and they think it's, it's ruthless instruction from God to Israel. And there's many other places that get a lot heavier. If you read what God called Israel to do to the Canaanite people and the extent to which he called them to do it, he's going to call for them to slaughter not only the men and the women, the babies and the animals and all of these things. And people have a hard time reading that and go, how can a loving God do that? But what we're going to see today, first and foremost, is that God's, God's rendering of judgment against the Canaanites is, is coupled together with his love. God is not uh, hateful towards sin at the expense of his love. Does that make sense? He's always fully loving, but he's always fully in control, and he's always fully just. And God is always doing exactly uh, what is according to not only his purposes, but his character and what is good for his people, what brings glory to his name and to his son. So we'll wrestle with some of that today. If you have questions, I'd love to, you can ask those questions. But if you read this and you read this in the context of everything he's already said and what he's doing, the promises he's made, and you read this in light of who he is, what he does to the children that are slaughtered and all that, you should have no problem with what the Lord is calling the Israelites to do here, and it actually fits in perfectly with who he is, what he has, what he has already foretold, and uh, what he will do in the future. All that being said, there are some heavy words, and there are some things you have to wrestle through. So, Lord willing, today you'll see how important these words are, uh, and then how they, like I said, they directly apply to our lives. The first thing we're going to look at here is the promises he gives right out the gate. As we look at the perils of idolatry, you've got to start with the promises of God, the promises of Yahweh, and what he is doing in, this, in, the, in the context here. In chapter 7, verse 1, it says, When Yahweh your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it. The first thing he is bringing to light here is the fact that this is something that he promised or he swore to do for Abraham and his descendants hundreds of years prior. God, at this point, is just fulfilling the, the promises of the Abrahamic covenant that he swore to Abraham a long time ago. We've covered the Abrahamic covenant uh, a lot in Deuteronomy, but just a real quick, just two places to look at. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, when Yahweh God uh, called Abram out while he was still living in the land of Ur, he says, Go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
I underlined those things just to kind of show you what is going on here historically when they're on the other side of the plains of Moab and they're about to go into the land. God is using the Israelites to wipe out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the, the Hivites, the, all, the, all the ites that are over there in the land of Canaan, that, that he's bringing about his own judgment. He's using the nation of Israel, and he is fulfilling the promise that he told to Abraham, which is part of his, his uh, overarching plan of sending his son to die for the sins of the world, to return and to set on his throne in this land for a thousand years and reign as king. Does that make sense? This is just part of how it historically plays out. And so we know that from Genesis 12. In Genesis 15, when God shows back up to Abram and, uh, and he ratifies the Abrahamic covenant, um, he says this. Uh, in Genesis 15, 7 through 8, uh, it says that he said to him, or God says to Abram, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And he said, oh, Lord Yahweh, how may I know that I will possess it? Because, again, at this point, Abraham or Abram is, I think, 86 at this point in the narrative. And he's like, how is this going to happen? He has no children. How, does, how is he going to inherit all this land? How is it going to be? How is he going to become a nation? All the things God promised him. And it says in Genesis 15, it happened when the sun went down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. That's God showing up. God shows up in fire and darkness. Terror comes upon him as the presence of God shows up. It says, God said to Abram, Know for certain that your seed will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs. They will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. That's their whole time down in Egypt. But I will also judge the nation uh, to whom they are enslaved. And afterwards, they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. That means you will die and be together with all those who believe in heaven. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here to the place that Abram is sitting as God ratifies this covenant. He says, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So the time for the, the, the people of the land to be judged is not there yet. God has given him 400 more years of sin, 400 more years of, we just read it in 1 Peter 3, right? The grace of God, a day's like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day is his desire that none of those who belong to him will perish. They got 400 more years of ability to repent and to believe and to follow and or 400 more years of sin to build up for the perfect judgment of God to come upon them. And he says, now it happened that the sun set, he was very, it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. That's just the, the, the presence of God, the glory of God. Uh, and it says, on that day, Yahweh cut a covenant with Abram, saying, to your seed I have given this land. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, uh, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Kadamonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. So, Basically, everybody that lives in this land, doesn't matter who thinks they own this land, it's God's land, and God's given it to Israel, and it belongs to Israel. To this day, that is their land. To this day, that is his land. It doesn't matter what the Muslims say. It doesn't matter what anyone says. It doesn't matter what the UN says. It doesn't matter what some college group out in San Francisco says. That is God's land. It belongs, the whole earth belongs to him, and that is his special piece of property, and he's given it to Abraham's descendants. And we, as the children of God, have been grafted into these promises. And we will inherit many of these promises because of the love of God through the new covenant. But it's his land. Does that make sense? So it was his land before. It's his land at the time when Israel's sitting there on the other side of the, um, uh, the uh, Jordan River. And it's going to be their land to inherit when they cross over. God's giving it to them. Does that make sense? That's what's going on. Historically, God is giving them the land that he swore to give to Abraham. Now, we know when Jacob's family went down to, Genesis, uh, d- down to Egypt in Genesis 46, the whole house of Jacob went down. There were 70 persons in all. In Genesis 48, 21, it says that Israel or Jacob said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you, and he will bring you back to the land of your fathers. So, again, what is going on here is it's just a fulfillment of what God has said will happen. They're about to inherit the promised land that God promised to Abraham. The whole book of Exodus talks about, uh, uh, this is the whole purpose of the book of Exodus, to describe God pulling Israel out of Egypt, out of the bondage and slavery of Egypt, bringing them out through all the miraculous signs and wonders and coming to this place where he's about to give them the land. And again, it's over and over and over. We talked about that when we, we start with all the... 
the background for Deuteronomy, I told you, every time you see the land, the land, the land, it's talking about this piece of property that God has given to Israel forever. And so, again, that's what's going on in Exodus. God is bringing them. God's going to deliver them. He's bringing them to a land that's good and spacious. He is going to bring them to this land that he swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God is doing it. That's, That's what's going on here. These are the promises of God. And then we see more of these promises. Not only is he going to bring them into the land that they're entering to possess, but it's God who clears away many nations before you. It's God who is going to wipe out all of those nations. So again, if your problem is with Israel and Israel making war against these people, you've got to get a bigger view. Your problem is with God. God is the one that will wipe out all of these nations. God is the one that has promised to give Israel this land. God is the one that said this land belongs to Israel. God is the one that says it belongs to him. And God is the one that is going to command Israel to destroy even the children. So again, you've got to wrestle with that. Your problem's not with the people of Israel. Your problem's with God. God is the one that is commanding all these things. And God is actually saying, I'm the one that's going to do it. God is the one that's going to give them the land, and God is the one that's going to drive out their enemies. In fact, Exodus 23 says it this way. And this is, this is really insightful and neat that the Lord allowed us to know this, because we wouldn't know this if God hadn't put it in his word. But God says, when it comes to wiping out the Hittites and the, Hitt- the Hivites and the Canaanites and all the ites, he says, I'm going to send an angel before you to keep you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. That's a blessing. God's going to send his angel not only to watch over and protect Israel, but to destroy their enemies and to make sure that they submit to him in faithfulness. Because, again, you know and I know that the first thing we do is flee away from God or buck up against his commands or try to hide from these hard things. And God's going to use this angel. And I believe you can make a very good case that this is Christ prior to him being incarnate Christ uh, Jesus that we know uh, in the New Testament. God's going to send his angel. And look at what it says of this angel. It says, keep watch of yourself before him and listen to his voice. Do not be rebellious towards him, for he will not pardon your transgression. It's very rare in the Bible that God says, I will not or he will not pardon your transgression. Because most of the time we read, God always pardons our transgression, right? The only other place I can think of off the top of my head this is just off the top of my head. I know that it's said elsewhere in the Bible. Is in Joshua when they got idols in their pockets. And they're sitting there saying, hey, we're going to follow God. We will never forsake him. And he says, God is a jealous God. He will not forgive you. You cannot follow him. And the reason is because you are already currently serving other things in your heart. And so, again, God does not tolerate idolatry. He does not tolerate us having other things that mean more to us than Christ. God wants full the full authority, full devotion, full loyalty, full allegiance for his people. And his people want the same thing. So he says, you keep watch over yourself. As this angel goes before you, he will not pardon your transgressions since my name is in him. But if you truly listen to his voice and you do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an and, and adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. I will annihilate them. So the point here is God has already rendered judgment on these people. These people have already been given over to destruction by the Lord. And the Lord is going to accomplish his purpose and his will. He's using the people of Israel to, in obedience and faithfulness to him, submission to him, to play out how the Canaanites will be judged and the land will become the land of the nation of Israel. If you really, really think about it, any war, any time throughout the history of human history that, that nations have overtaken nations and there's been slaughter and all of that, in some way, even when evil people do it, it's still going to line up with the sovereign overarching will of God Because he still takes evil things, wicked nations and wicked kings. We know this when Babylon and Assyria take over Israel. He even uses them to judge his own people because his own people have forsaken him and run after idols. But God takes the nations of the world and does whatever he wants to with them to make sure 
that all of his children come to him, that it's good for all of his children, that his son is glorified, that his name is glorified. And even in their judgment, he's still bringing glory to his name. But if you really get down to the bottom line, every single time one of these things happen, God is still in charge and or behind it. Not that he ever does any evil, but evil men always accomplish his good purpose, even in their evilness. That's the greatness of our God. So again, when you wrestle with how can God tell Israel to do these things, you got to get bigger than that and go, how can God allow evil ever? You know what I mean? That's the big thing that you're really getting at. And really what we're, what we're concerned about is God actually being a loving God, a good God, a gracious God, a kind God, God actually being who he truly reveals himself to be as evil things happen in this world. So again, it's okay to wrestle with that, but you've got to bring your mind in submission to his word, and you've got to understand that his will is perfect. And sometimes we don't know the ins and outs. Here's one of the only times in history that we get a glimpse of what God is commanding a nation to do as the nation goes in and wipes out another nation. We don't know why Russia invaded Ukraine or any of that stuff, right? We don't understand the spiritual things happening behind the scenes because they've not been revealed to us. But we do know God's in control of it. He always is. But here, we get to see exactly what he's doing. He's fulfilling a promise. He's judging those who have uh, 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 sinned against him for hundreds and hundreds of years. He's displacing them from the land. He's fulfilling a promise he made to Abraham. And he's sending his people in to take the land that belongs to him that he is giving to the Israelites. And again, we know that these, all these ites are very strong and powerful people. Don't think of them as just a bunch of nomads wandering around and the Israelites are going to go in and wipe them out. These are fortified cities. These are strong people. We know that from Numbers 13 when the spies went out. They were terrified, right? They send the, or the 12 spies out into the land. They return. They said the land is great. It does flow with milk and honey. The fruit's awesome. I mean, so they're, they're like, yeah, this is awesome land. But... They said the people who live in the land are strong. The cities are fortified. They're very large. And we saw the descendants of Anak there. That's giants, huge people. And Amalek, same thing, living in the land. And so because of their fear, because they didn't trust the Lord, that the Lord would deliver them because they see the cities and the strength and the size of the armies and the size of the people, they forsake the Lord. And God is reminding the second generation, don't do what your parents did. The people over there are huge. They're way bigger than you. They're way more powerful than you. They're way more fortified than you. And this is an impossible task. But I am sending my angel before you. I will be with you. I am the one that will annihilate them. And he goes and he reminds them, look at the two kings of the Amorites on this side of the Jordan that you wiped. You shouldn't have been able to do that either. And you did it. You did it because you were faithful to me. You submitted to me. You listened to me. And that's always the call of the Lord. Listen to what I said. Trust what I say. And then do exactly what I say. So God's sovereignty is at display here. God's promises are going to be fulfilled. God is going to do what God is going to do. But then there is the responsibility of the Israelites. And this is good for us to wrestle with. Because again, when it comes to salvation, a lot of times we're going to go, where is God's sovereignty? You know, uh, where, do, where does God's sovereignty meet the responsibilities of me? You know, God will choose. God has your name written in his book. God is the one that does everything. God brings salvation. God brings about sanctification. God brings about glorification. God does everything when it comes to anything good in our life. But you still must believe. You must forsake your idols. You must repent. You must endure to the end. You must submit to him and trust him and be faithful to him. And so those things marry together perfectly in the sovereign will of God and in the plan of God. And you see that here uh, in the next verses. He says, after he talks about all the things that he will do, he's going to annihilate. He's going to send his angel. He's going to be the one to displace them. He's going to be the one to give them the land. But he tells Israel, you strike them down. You devote them to destruction. You cut no covenant with any of them, and you show them no favor. Now, again, you cannot take this and apply this directly to your life when it comes to any other people group. You are called to love your enemies. You are called to lay down your life for those who hate you. You are called not to revile and return when being reviled like your Savior, Jesus Christ. And you are called to give up your life here on earth for those who hate hate God, 
and hate the gospel out of a love for their souls and hope that in the process of your own self-sacrifice, they will come to the Lord. And the New Testament is full of that. The Old Testament is also full of that. But here we're talking about a special situation where God is using his people to destroy a group of people for a purpose. And here, I think what you start to see is the peril of idolatry. The peril of idolatry. He tells them to strike down, to devote to destruction, to cut no favor, or to cut no covenant, and to show no favor. He goes on to say, do not intermarry with them. And then he tells them the reason why. If you leave them, if they remain, if you don't completely fulfill what I've called you to do, and then you begin to uh, 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 exist with them, then what will happen, he says, they will turn your sons away from following me. They will serve other gods. Um, and, and then the anger of Yahweh will be kindled against you. And you will quickly, or I'm sorry, he, Yahweh, will quickly destroy you. So he's an enemy for your enemies and an adversary for your adversaries if you're submissive to him. But if you let your adversaries and your enemies remain, then what you will find, you begin to coddle and cuddle the adversaries that God has devoted to destruction, then what's going to happen is Yahweh is going to come after you. And so we're going to talk about this when, like I said, the narrative here in the Old Testament and the command that God gives to the Israelites. There's something important for us to understand here when it comes to idols in our own hearts. Uh, Here, the Lord is calling them to submission and obedience. He's telling them to listen and to obey and to keep their soul diligently. We've seen that in Deuteronomy 4. We saw that in Deuteronomy 6. And here we see the application of it when it comes to annihilating their enemies when they get into the land. And and the big the big phrase here that people have a really hard time is uh, this whole devoted to destruction or fully destroyed. I don't know how it says it uh, in the different translations, but in the LSB, it talks about them being devoted to destruction. So I want to talk about that a little bit because this is the hardest thing for people to swallow. But when God talks about the, the people of the land of Canaan being devoted to destruction, this is something he has talked about already up to this point many times. And you're going to see it all over the Old Testament. And understanding it will help you to see how it is very, very important that you destroy all that has been devoted to destruction and you do not leave anything remaining. Uh, in Deuteronomy 2, 32 to 35, I didn't write these up there, so you, you can jot them down or you can flip around. Uh, but Deuteronomy 2, he talks about uh, Sion, uh, the, the king, on the, the Amorite king. Uh, he says, we captured all the, his cities at that time and devoted to destruction the men, the women, the little ones from every city. <coughs> we left no survivor remaining. We took only the animals as our plunder and the spoil of the cities which we had captured. So when they destroyed Sion, uh, everything, all the, the human life was devoted to destruction. They were all killed, and they only kept the animals um, and, uh, and, the, and the spoil of the cities. In Deuteronomy 6, or, I'm sorry, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 6, He says the same thing with Og of Bashan. He says, We devoted them to destruction, as we did to Sion, king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction the men, the women, the little ones of every city. The animals and the spoil of the city we took as our plunder. Um, What you see in Leviticus 27, 28, anything devoted to destruction is most holy to Yahweh God. When you talk about something being devoted to destruction, what it's basically saying is the Lord has revealed in his word that this is under his judgment. And anything that has been devoted to destruction, in a sense, belongs to him. And you can't take that from him. Does that make sense? Sometimes, he says, all the animals in the city itself, burn it to the ground. None of that will remain. All of it has been devoted to destruction. Sometimes, he says, the men of the city are devoted to destruction. You can keep the women and children alive. Sometimes he says, every human life devoted to destruction. Whatever God devotes to destruction must be destroyed. That's the point. If God devotes it to destruction, it must be destroyed. You don't have the authority or the ability to be like, well, we'll destroy the men, but let's keep the children alive. We'll destroy the men, but let's keep the pigs alive. You know what I mean? You've got you to gotta decide. Uh, not, not, you, you don't get the decision of what does and does not belong to God. You must listen to and obey. Joshua 6, 17, when they approached Jericho, Jericho is a city devoted to destruction. And all that is in it, it says, everything that is in it belongs to Yahweh. Israel did not have the right to take anything from Jericho. It was all devoted to destruction. 
It all belonged to him. That was the problem with Achan. Think about that. Many times the Israelites destroyed a city, took the gold, took the animals, sometimes even allowed the women and children to live and to be part of, 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 of the nation of Israel. But not with Jericho. With Jericho, it says that Achan took, I, can't, I didn't write it down, I think it was a mantle, it was like a beautiful mantle from Babylon or something like that. It was, it was something beautiful that, that he cherished and he decided, I'm just going to keep this one thing. And so he took this one little thing. And because of that, when they went out to fight Ai, the next battle, Ai, which is a much smaller uh, uh, city, was able to, to, to fight off the Israelites. Many Israelites died. And Joshua was like, what in the world? And they were disheartened. And they're like, how? I mean, we've come into the land, and the second battle, we got defeated. How in the world is this going to happen? And God tells them, it's because someone has taken something devoted to destruction. You did not listen to what I commanded you to do. In Joshua 7, verse 1, it says, The sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things devoted to destruction. Achan, the son of Camri, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. Therefore, the anger of Yahweh burned against the sons of Israel. So it became firsthand experience right out the gate of what it looks like if you take something devoted to destruction. Joshua 7, verses 11 through 13, God says, Israel has sinned. They have trespassed against my covenant, which I commanded them. So, to disobey God at any level and to not fully submit to what he's called you to do and to cherish any little thing that he's devoted to destruction to keep it for yourself, it turns the anger of Yahweh against the people of Israel. It says, they have even taken some of the things devoted to destruction. They have stolen and they have dealt falsely. So, who do they steal from? God. They stole from him, and they have dealt falsely by hiding the fact that they took something he devoted to destruction. And so, he says, therefore, the sons of Israel cannot rise against their enemies. I mean, he's already told them, I will drive out all your enemies. I'll send my angel before you. I'll wipe them all out. But if they disobey or they act unfaithfully, there's no possibility, right? The, the people are way too big. They're way too strong, and God is not with them. And so, he says, they turn their backs uh, before their enemies, for they have become... Devoted to destruction. Can you imagine that? God tells them to destroy things devoted to destruction. And when Israel transgresses God, Israel is now devoted to destruction. In other words, God has set his face and his anger and his wrath against the very people that he just delivered out of of Egypt and brought into the land. That ought to be terrifying. And I'm going to make the application to you and me very soon. That should be terrifying. God says, I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things devoted to destruction in your midst. He says, there are things devoted to destruction in your midst, O Israel, and you cannot rise before your enemies until you have removed the things devoted to destruction in your midst. So again, this is helping you to understand what it means for something to be devoted to destruction. If it's devoted to destruction, it no longer belongs to anyone here on earth. It belongs to God. If it's devoted to destruction, it must be destroyed. If it is not destroyed and is coddled or kept in deceit or in secrecy, well, now you have set yourself against Yahweh God, and He's coming for you. Again, that ought to send chills up your spine, because you know where I'm going with this, right? And you know, and I know, that we have idols in our hearts, and we're going to get there in a second. But let me tell you one more story. All right, This comes from 1 Samuel 15. It's about Saul. And Saul is fighting the Amalekites. And there's a king named Agag. And Samuel has told Saul, through what God has revealed to Samuel, that the Amalekites have been devoted to destruction by Yahweh. Saul, your job is to go and to destroy everything. Keep nothing. It's just like Jericho. Burn it all to the ground. I don't know if he said burn it to the ground, but let me add to the word. He says they're devoted to destruction. That's the point. And so it says that Samuel went. Or actually, I wrote down First Samuel 15, 3. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that he has. Listen to this. God is very explicit what he wants devoted to destruction. Do not spare him, Agag, uh, but put to death both man and woman, infant and nursing baby, ox and sheep, camel and and donkey. That was the, the, the command of God. That's Saul's job. 
God says they've been devoted, they belong to me. I want them wiped out. And, and this is my judgment on the, the people of Amalek. It says, but Samuel, I'm sorry, Saul went, in 1 Samuel 15, 8 through 9, it says, he seized Agag the king of the Amalekites alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag. They spared the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And they were not willing to devote them to destruction. But everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. If you go read in 1 Samuel 15, this is where Samuel confronts Saul and tells Saul it is better to, I don't have it in front of me, better to obey than sacrifice. Uh, Insubordination is the same thing as idolatry. Like I said, that's my paraphrase because I can't get there fast enough. But that's the whole point of 1 Samuel 15. And then it says that Samuel went and found Agag. Agag thought that the time of, of, of war was over. And it says that he hacked him to pieces right there. Samuel did what Saul didn't do. And he destroyed Agag in front of him. Now, if you keep reading, what you find out is these Amalekites that, uh, that, that, that Saul allowed to live uh, uh, and did not devote to destruction. Later, they, they pop up. And, uh, and, and what you find out later is they, they steal parts of David's family at one point. They become a thorn in the side of Israel. Um, and, uh, and, and again, we just know a little bit about the Malachites, but the point was, was Saul was supposed to wipe them out. He didn't wipe them out. He vote, devoted to destruction everything he thought should be destroyed, and he kept everything that he thought should be kept. And you know what he did what he, what, with what he kept? He used it as sacrifices to God. He just wanted to worship with it. He, he wanted to give it to God. But God says, it's already mine, and I told you to destroy it. If you want to glorify me, if you want to worship me, if you want to do what I've called you to do, then you should have killed them all. And you should have wiped it all out. That would have been worshiping the Lord. And so the problem with what, uh, what, what Saul did, and this is what caused God to reject Saul in his line and to choose David. But it was because God said, devote them to destruction, and he didn't do it. So the point of all that is to help you to wrestle with what does it mean when God says to devote something to destruction? It means you destroy it. You don't coddle it. You don't keep parts of it. You don't get rid of the bad stuff and you keep the good parts. You kill it. You get it out. And that's what he has called them to do. And then he says here, if they don't do that and they begin to intermarry with the nations, uh, back to Deuteronomy. I'm getting back to Deuteronomy now. He says, You shall not intermarry with them. Again, if they're devoted to destruction, if they wipe them out, there is no intermarrying because they don't exist, right? But if you leave them and you intermarry with them, well, let me tell you what's going to happen. He says, if you intermarry with them, you take their daughters, you give your sons to them, you give uh, uh, your daughters to their sons. He says, they will turn your sons away from following me. They will serve other gods. And then the anger of Yahweh will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you. So this is where the path goes. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars, shatter their sacred pillars, cut their ashram into pieces, and burn their graven images with fire. Now the sad story is, if you read forward in Joshua, at the very end of Joshua 23, uh, uh, God warns them and says, uh, If you ever turn back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you, and intermarry with... So let me, let me fill in the blanks here. They went out, they took the land... Uh, they renew the covenant at, at Gerizim and Shechem and all that. And, but there are still Canaanites that exist in the land. Now, God told them that you will drive them out over time. So there's still the time and the ability to be faithful at this point. But there's a warning here. When Joshua's dying, he warns them. There are still Canaanites in this land. You are not finished with the work. You have taken the land. God has given you the land. You are in the land. You've done what God has said. And at the same time, you still have things to do. Does that make sense? And he tells them, if these remain on you and you intermarry with them so that you go along with them and they with you, know with certainty that Yahweh your God will not continue to dispossess the nations before you. They will be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which Yahweh has given you. Like I said, then it gets sad. Joshua dies and it says this. Uh, it says that the generation... Actually... I didn't put this part in there. During the reign of Joshua, they were faithful to God. It says, even when the elders who were with Joshua still were alive, Israel was faithful. But then there arose a generation after that that did not know God. And this is what it says in Judges 2, 1 through 4. So 
It says, the angel of Yahweh came up from Gilgal to, to Bochum. The angel of Yahweh, again, this is the presence of God. This is Christ before his incarnation, which is, again, why I think when he says, I'm going to send my angel before you to clear out, to annihilate all that, that was Jesus. That was God. That was the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity doing this. He's here with them. It says the angel of Yahweh came from Gilgal to Bochum. It sounds like he was physically present with them in some fashion or form. And he comes up and he says, I brought you up out of Egypt. I led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall cut no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not listened to my voice. What is this you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides and their gods will become a snare to you. So it happened that when the angel of Yahweh spoke these words to the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. The reason I want to throw that in there is everything that he said was going to happen is happening at the beginning of Judges. They almost obeyed him. They came so close. They did take the land. They are in the land now. They own it and they possess it, but they left the people. There's still the possibility of them wiping them out, but they're not doing it. And now the ones that they've allowed to remain that have been devoted to destruction by God will now be thorns in their side for the remainder of their existence in the land. They are going to intermarry with them. They're going to adopt their gods. They're going to do everything God said. And eventually Yahweh will set his face against Israel and he will kick them out of the land. Now, Yahweh God still has made a covenant with Abraham and later with David and a new covenant he makes that he will faithfully bring them back. Hosea is a whole allegory about Hosea and his wife that, that's used to show Yahweh's love for Israel, that he will remarry, he will bring them back, he will give them the land that, they, that, that, that rightfully belongs to him because of what he will do through his son Jesus Christ in the new covenant. But for the present time, they will forsake him and he will forsake them and he will set his face against them. And the whole book of Judges is the historical outplaying of that. And it's so sad if you've read Judges says, the anger of Yahweh burned against Israel. And he said, because this nation has trespassed against my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not listened to my voice, I will no longer dispossess before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them. Now, this is important. Whether they will keep the way of Yahweh and walk in it as their fathers did. And so Yahweh allowed these na- those nations to rest, not dispossessing them quickly. And he did not give them into the hands of Joshua. So now the enemies remain. They're going to be thorns in their side. But God's also going to use those very same thorns and remaining enemies and all that to be a test of the faithfulness of his people. And it says, now these are the nations which Yahweh allowed to remain to test Israel by them. And it lists them all. And it says, and they were for the testing of Israel to know if they would obey the commandments of Yahweh. This is important. He goes on to say uh, that now the sons of Israel lived amongst them and they, look what they did. They took their daughters for themselves as wives and they gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. And it's downhill from there. From that point forward, it gets worse and worse and worse. When you read in first Kings, when Solomon shows up, they're still there. Those are the Canaanites. I'm sorry. The sons of Israel were still unable to devote, uh, these people to destructions, the Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, Amorites and Hittites. When you show, when you look at Ezra nine, after they've been kicked out of the land and after they've returned, after the destruction of, of Jerusalem by Babylon, they're still in the land. They're still there. And there's still thorns in their sides. And you know what Israel does? The first thing they do, the remnant that comes back, they begin to intermarry with them again. And Ezra shows up and says, get rid of your wives and your children and devote yourself to God. Now, again, people read that and they're like, that's awful. Why would God want that? Because they were devoted to destruction from the very beginning. And Israel was never, ever faithful to do what God said. And all the generations after that suffered from the unfaithfulness of their fathers, not destroying the people that God had devoted to destruction. Yeah. Yeah. Safe in the arms of God? Totally. And that's the thing, too. Again. Well, absolutely. 
But here's the thing. Whether or not you've worked that out theologically, you have to trust the Lord. Look at the good God that does all good things. I mean, again, when it talks about them being devoted to destruction, it obviously doesn't mean they're necessarily in hell, right? Because animals don't go to hell, and, all, you know, and babies don't go to hell. And so God, in the midst of destroying these nations, because of their sinfulness and because of the parents' sinfulness, the children are dying. And again, apply that in all of our lives. Think of the things that you've done that affected your children that now you see are the consequences of your own sin, and you wish to goodness you could that. We know that personally. We know that from our own families. We know that from our culture, right? And so we understand that. And so children have consequences because of their own parents' disobedience. And at the same time, the children are responsible themselves for their own belief and submission and obedience to Jesus Christ. But God takes care of the children. Before I do any other questions, though, I want to get to the, 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 the point here. Uh, but, yes, there is a good God, a faithful God, a God that loses none, that saves all those who belong to him, in charge of all of this. But when God tells us strong things, like to devote something to destruction, even if we can't understand how every single aspect of that will work out perfectly, we still understand that everything about him always does what is good and right and just, and we must submit to him. And I believe the same point resonates with us, and we buck against it, when he calls for the full annihilation of all things that we cherish over and above him, it comes down to our own idolatry. And you know how your heart yearns for things that the Lord says, get rid of it. And you're like, but it's not bad. It's not sin. And he's like, get rid of it. And you're like, but, I, but again, I can still worship him and, and it's okay. And he says, get rid of it. And you're like, I don't think it's that bad. And how, why would a good guy? We do this all the time. And when he wants full devotion and full annihilation of all things that would ever cause you to either question him, forsake him, not follow him, or he's just said it in his word. And that is the point I want to make. God told Israel to destroy the Canaanites. He's not going to tell you to go out and wipe out any other person, okay? That's never going to be a command to you. That was something that historically was given to Israel, and that's that. But those same things are implied towards us every time in both the Old Testament and the New Testament when it comes to idolatry. John MacArthur in, in a, a, a book, I can't remember the name of it. Actually, I do remember the name of it. It was called Hacking Agag to Pieces. It, was a, it, was a, it wasn't a book, it was a pamphlet, and it was a pamphlet that came from a sermon that he preached about 1 Samuel 17. But it says this, the flesh is very subtle and deceptive, as we know. A particular sin may leave us alone for a while to make us think we're rid of it, but it can come back with a hellish fury if we are not on our guard. Sin perpetually stalks us we must be continually mortifying it. This is the duty. We cannot rest from it until we rest in glory. The reason I wanted to throw that up there is here's how it usually works in our life. And you ought to know this. I know this very well. It's things that you out the gate. You came to the Lord. Man, you were full force in mortification mode. And you were like, I'll rid my life of anything that keeps me from Christ. And you were on it, right? And then... You begin to follow the Lord. You're still walking in faithfulness. But then you start seeing some of the things that you did out the gate were zeal. You know, you might have done it out of, out of a zeal for the Lord, but it may be not done with wisdom or discernment. Or you begin to look around the church and you see other people doing things. And you begin to go, well, I mean, it may not be that bad. And very easily, 1 Corinthians talks about this. Our freedoms can become the very things that are enslaving us. And our preferences and our freedoms can become the things that are actually hindering our walk with God, our faithfulness and our holiness to him. And you must cut the heads off of anything that keeps you from the Lord. And so MacArthur points that out in his book. He talks about Agag. He talks about the Amalekites and how the Amalekites were always a nuisance. The same thing is being applied to Israel and the Canaanites. With Israel, these are going to be thorns in your side. They're always there for your testing. And Israel's faithfulness with these now uh, everlasting tests that are going to be there for the nation reveal what's in their hearts. And the same application can be made with you as a Christian. And the things, think about this. When you came to the Lord, there were some things that it's almost like he, you feel like he took them away. At some point, you had to have fought those things, re, turned your habits away, and followed him. You know, because he doesn't just magically take things away. We practice holiness, righteousness, and faithfulness. But there are some things that remain. And the positive is that those things remain in your life as a tool for God to use for your own sanctification. You ought to know that because you fight them all the time. Whether it's jealousy, envy, lust, impatience, pride, you can name it. We know the things that we're prone to and the things that we run back to and the things that we manifest often and the things that we fight consistently and we hate them. And we pray for God to take them away, but God still uses them to sanctify us. 
But one of the things that may be there, sometimes these things remain because we didn't do a good job mortifying them out the gate and because we've allowed them to remain. And because we allow them to remain, they become thorns in our side. Now, can God use those things for good? Absolutely. He says he's going to do that with Canaan for the people of Israel. But we've got to come back to the bottom line. If God says get rid of it, you get rid of it. If he says destroy it, you destroy it. And you kill anything that will separate you from him, cause you not to walk in holiness and faithfulness. Any idol in your life, you want to rid yourself of it because you want full loyalty and faithfulness to God. And so I want to make this point today. And this is all we're going to do today because we're, we're there. But what are the things that remain in your life? Again, we're in Deuteronomy. We're talking about Israel and we're talking about the Canaanites. Those things are far removed from us by time and geography. In some sense, you know, we, you know that's that. But then bring the implications and application to your life because this is important. And I know all of you are fighting against the flesh because that's what Christians do. I mean, all of us are striving to identify the things in our life that, 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 that call for our loyalty or our love, that compete with our devotion and love of Jesus Christ. And so look at the things that remain in your life. Ask yourself, why do they remain? Do they remain because you've allowed them to remain when you should have, in a sense, devoted them to destruction? Is part of that, yes, the grace of the Lord that you have to continually fight? Many things we're, we have to fight our whole life because we exposed ourselves to those things before we came to the Lord. And that's okay. God will still use them for our sanctification and for His glory and for His good. And He'll change us more into the image of Christ through the fight itself. But there are other things that are hindering our walk with the Lord. And the reason that they're hindering us is our fault. Does that make sense? And you want to identify those things and get them out of your life. I'm not saying this as a, I'm there and you got to do it too. I'm saying that this is what we all fight. This was a very convicting sermon or, you know, study for me. Because it didn't take me long to go, I know what they are. And it shouldn't take you long either. If you're sitting there going, yeah, I should think about that. Then you may be just dull and hardened. Because you know the things that have got to go today. And I just wanted to, to, to bring that weight to bear upon us. Don't be like the Israelites. And you're going to see it in Joshua. We're not going to see it in Joshua, but I've talked about it in Joshua 24 when they're like, we love the Lord. He's the one that delivered us out of Egypt. And he's the one that brought us with miracles to this place and destroyed all of our enemies of the land and gave us this land. We will worship him. And Joshua says, you can't because you got idols in your pockets. Get rid of your idols and then worship the Lord. And to the very end, they, they just keep going, but we will worship him. And they never actually take the idols out and get rid of them. But we can do the same thing. Don't just say with your lips, I love him. He died on the cross for my sins. He's the one that rose from the grave. He gives me victory. He's my Lord. Those things may all very well be true. But if you're saying those words, knowing that you got these things, that you will not forsake for him, then understand the warnings that come the same God that destroys idols and destroys sin and destroys sinners will set his face against you. And that's the last place we want him to be. It doesn't mean that he's not gracious. It doesn't mean that he's not patient. It doesn't mean that he doesn't give us time to, to fight through these things. But you, let the warnings be warnings. Don't cover up the warnings to comfort yourself. Let the promises be promises and the warnings be warnings. But be warned by the warnings. Go read Hebrews 3, right? Do not be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin and your heart be hardened. As long as today is called today, today is the day of salvation, the day of forsaking your idols. Don't be like the Israelites. Or Hebrews 6, right? The peril of falling away from the living God. Or Hebrews 10, when he reminds you, if you go on sinning willfully after knowing the gospel of Christ, this is my, my rendition of it, then there is no other salvation. There's not going to be another salvation. But the only thing that you have waiting on the other side of death is the fire and fury of a consuming, almighty God. The same consuming fire that the Israelites watched on Mount Sinai and watched lead them through the desert and watched wipe out all the Canaanites. He will be against you. And that's terrifying. Now for the child of God, yes, 
You are safe in the arms of God. Yes, the Spirit of God fills you. Yes, He will patiently change you. Yes, there are promises. And He takes care of all those who belong to Him. Him, He loses none. We can't be separated from His love. But don't deceive yourself into thinking that you can both have the world and the Lord or your idols and Christ or your lusts of your flesh and full devotion to Jesus Christ. Christ says, it's, I'm everything or I'm nothing. And we have to understand that. And so, like I said, I just wanted to, I thought that was uh, such an important thing for us to wrestle with. We'll, next week we'll pick it back up. But like I said, I want you to walk away here today going, you know, what are the idols that the Lord has allowed to remain and test in your life? And, and, and are you listening and submitting to Him? Are you obeying and trusting Him and following Him? And, 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 and understanding the, the deceitfulness of these things and, and what they can do in your life. And what must you put away to be fully and wholeheartedly devoted to Christ and Christ alone? All of us need to examine our hearts in light of that. Let me pray for us.